out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Smutty Smith. <laughs> Sometimes known as Stephen Dennis Smith. Yes, the bass player with many bands, including the Rock Cats. Um, discovered by the one and only Lee Black Childers, who was the tour manager of David Bowie, Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Um, started out in Essex, but ended up in New York, hanging out with the likes of Andy Warhol, Robert Maplethorpe, and many, many more. Anyway, I won't bore you. It's a spoiler, and um, we don't want to do that. So look, after quite a lot of chat with uh, Smutty, um, yes, we got down to the interview. I'll just say, there's a couple of times where there's odd breaks, mainly because he had to go off and get some water or something. I don't know. I didn't ask. And also, he was feeling a little bit tender because his mother died a week before. So um, yes, I just thought I'd mention that. Um for some reason, but it slightly it might make a bit more sense when you listen to the interview. Anyway, look, after many chat, many minutes chatting and getting stuff sorted out, I know, recording devices really, he's in Iceland, I was in Norwich, um, we got down to the early formative years. Right, Smutty, it's over to you. I think it was in 1974, 75, and... Um, I was living in Basildon, Essex, and um, I saw T-Rex on top of the pops, and then I saw bands that started to come out that were like uh, I was I was like in, I was into the Teddy Boy scene at thirteen and fourteen, and you know, and back in the day in South End on Sea, you had the you know, and I grew up in Basildon, Essex. You had these like tribal community communities where you had to be like. A Ted, a rocker, a biker, a hippie. You, you, you almost had to have a label. You were beat up if you didn't have a label. And I decided at that point, and about probably about 1975, that I, I wanted to be a Teddy boy. And I like I like the Edwardian dress, and I like the style of the clothes, and I, and I, and I started to get into English uh, rockabilly music, which was also promoted heavily at the time by Charlie Records, which had like records like Jungle Rock and and then you had Mud and you had Shwadi Wadi and you had Gary Galilo and you had Roxy Music. They were all wearing like, you know, Teddy Boy attire. And I was attracted to that and I met Levi Dexter, the singer of the Rock Cats in 1974. And then um, he was living with me in Basel in Essex at the time in 1974, 75. And then one day he used to get up and sing with bands like, you know, do like, you know, a couple of songs of like Shaking Stevens, Crazy Cavern, Flying Saucers, you know, bands around the town. And then one day he, he got up and sang at the Screen on the Green uh, in 1975 or 76, probably 76. Uh, there was a screening of The Girl Can't Help It. And uh, Lee Black Childers, it was Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers manager uh, from the Anarchy Tour. Um, it was friends from McLaren and Bernie Rhodes, and had also managed and tour managed David Bowie, the, uh, the Iggy Pop and Stooges, Mott the Hoople. He came up to me after the show and said, I really think you were cool. Um, what do you think about starting a band? And uh, 
And uh, Lee was uh, uh, working with Track Records, which were the Heartbreakers, Johnny Thunders was signed to. And he said, do you want to meet me next week? And then uh, I would leave, I was living at my house in Essex and he met Lee and he, and, he, and he went to him and he pitched his big pitch and said, hey, you know, I like rockabilly, I'm a teddy boy, I'm from South End, I like, but I like this and this and this and this. And he said, well, I, I just came off the Annie in the UK tour with the Sex Pistols and the Clash, the Damned and Susie. And uh, would you consider starting a band? And, um, you know, so Levi met him at track at Carnaby Street, on Carnaby Street, like a week later. And then I didn't see him for like a two, couple of weeks because he was living with him. And he said, I met this guy, his name was Lee Black Childers. He was, he was Andy Warhol's stage manager. He worked with Iggy Pop. He managed Mott the Hoople. He managed David Bowie as a publicist in 1972 on the Ziggy Stardust tour. And he wants me to start a band and he wants to meet you. So um, basically, long story short, um, a week later, or two weeks later, I was at the Royalty, which was a, a Teddy Boy stronghold at the time. Uh, um, Lee came there uh, and, uh, and stood on the balcony and I was downstairs dancing and bopping around. And, and then and, and, and Levi said, you know, uh, you know, you want to meet Smuddy? And he said, where do you think Smuddy is? And he said, is it that guy there down there with the tattoos dancing? And then he said, yeah. And then, and then, so after, after, uh, you know, I came upstairs, Lee said to me, he said, um, I'm starting to expand. I managed Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers. I've just came off the Sex Pistols Anarchy tour. Um, would you like to be in this band? We're going to, you know, we're going to Maxis, Kansas City. We're going to, you know, open for the cramps. We're going to do this, this, and this. And I said, I don't play anything. And he said, well, that doesn't matter right now because, you know, uh, you know, you know, we would, you know, if you, if you go and see the Clash or the Sex Pistols or Stussy or the Damned or any of those bands at that time, you know, very few of them could actually really play that well. And then Lee said, you know, do you want to play drums or bass? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, I said, what's the difference? And he said, well, if you play drums, you're going to be in the back of the audience and you're going to, you know, keep the, the rhythm down for the band. If you play bass, you'll be more up the front of the stage of Levi. And I said, I'll play bass. And so the next day, uh, after I'd met Lee, he bought me a stand-up bass and uh, he, he got me bass lessons. And he sent me over to Johnny Thunder's house on Oakley Street in Kings Road, off the Kings Road, down by uh, Malcolm's shop, Sex. And Billy Raff told me what the strings were. And I said, I need to learn a couple of songs. And Lee said, you have a gig in six weeks uh, uh, at the Royal College of Art with Steel Pulse and um, learn as many songs as you can. So uh, we had like, um, I think the first set we played was in 1977 at the Royal College of Art. And uh, I knew about four of the songs and the rest and the other three songs, I unplugged the bass and I danced around. That was pretty much it. That's how I got into it. <laughs> so that sounds slightly similar to, to the dear old Lemmy from Motorhead, who kind of saw somebody at, when he was at school with a guitar, and he was being chased by lots of women, girls probably at the time, because they were at school. And he thought, God, I'm going to get a guitar. But he could never quite play the rhythm guitar very well. So he got the bass, because he said, that's one instrument that you could sort of 
slightly sort of get the whole hang of quite quickly and obviously he kind of developed quite a distinct sound so was it the same with you that you sort of thought having not had a musical background you could just sort of pick this up quite quite quickly did you have the confidence to think yes this is it well i i i, I don't know really to be honest I, I had the confidence and uh i'd met lemmy early on because lemmy was around for you know most of the punk gigs and, and Gay Adver and um, Johnny and Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon and Billy Idol. Um, I, I met them all very early on. And, and, and although, although I wore a, a drape and I wore creepers and I wore this and I was obviously into rockabilly um, uh, and going to the Vortex and the Hunter Club and the Marquee and, and the Roxy, at that time was was it was a, a pretty tur turbulent time for um, the punk teddy boy movement weren't connected. Uh, they had a lot of uh, there was a lot of fighting going on down the King's Road. Most of it media uh, projected. But, um, but when I walked into those clubs, I was walking in with you know Johnny Thunders and Joe Stromer. So I I was kind of a bit like you know. Who the fuck is this guy? Uh, you know, it must be okay because he's with Joe Strummer and Johnny Thunders. So I went to the early gigs and then we played the Royal College of Art in 1977. We still pulse was our first gig. And I think uh, the second biggest gig we played with uh, in 77 on Boxing Day, we played with Susie and the Banshees, Adam and the Ants and Spiz Oil the music machine and there was bottles and glasses on of us but we, we what, what what lee wanted to do was to break down the barriers and the media between the fighting between the teddy boys and the punks and and it was uh, it was all media related it was it was it, it was all bullshit so you know uh, we did a tour with jane county and electric chairs in 1978 called the Eddie and Sheena tour. And um, I remember playing Glasgow and Edinburgh and Rafters in Manchester and, and, and clubs where they you know, literally had a tape down the middle of the dance floor saying, you know, uh, rockabillies and punks on this side and, and, and teddy boys on this side. And um, we, you know, Lee, Lee, Lee had a lot of uh, vision about, you know, Levi and the Rockcats and he obviously it worked with David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust. And he was a very old school kind of a Brian Epstein kind of a, a ideology of management. You know, he, he, saw, he saw something, he put the whole band together from, 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 from me to Levi to Dibs and everything. And he hooked us up with Jane County, but then he introduced us to people like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and Susie, and we became good friends. We were playing with Susie, and later on, I played with the Clash in London Calling on, on the Bonds and Times Square and Adam and the Ants and, and all the bands. So Lee was quite instrumental in um, in breaking down the, the media bullshit, you know, that was separating punks and Ted's, which are all basically from the same fucking background with the same schools, the same council states and the same jobs. Yes, absolutely. I know, well, going back to Lemmy, I know that he he sort of 
was part of that scene but then you know sort of like got pushed into the heavy metal and it's like well metal and punk doesn't really mix and it's like well it doesn't really matter I think so with, with that so as the band started to develop obviously it was you know a great live band did you start to go into the studio at all and start recording any material we did we did we did went in the studio we did one single with Jane Campney in electric chairs and then and then um Heartbreakers were signed to Track Records. And then when, when the Heartbreakers broke up, because when Jerry left, um, Lee decided to uh, take us to New York City. And he said, you know, you're going to go, hey, darlings. He was, a, you know, the you know the very gay man, crossed between Quentin Crisp and Truman Capote combined. And um, taught me all about Betty Davis and Billy Holiday. I mean, he was, he was, he was a very gay man, but he was, he was very special. And he was, he was old school. And he said, you darlings, you're going to New York and you're going to play Max's Kansas City with the Cramps. And so we said, well, how are we going to get there? And, and, you know, where, who are the Cramps and where's, you know, where are we going to play in New York? And Lee had connections from the Bowie thing. And he also was a, a photographer with rock scene with Mick Rock and Bob Groom. And um, he said, you know, you're going to go to New York. So we went to LA first, and then we we tried to get to New York via LA. We couldn't bring the whole band. First, it was just me and Levi and Lee and Gail, who was uh, Lee's assistant. And we ended up in New York, and we were staying at uh, Blondie, that was friends with Lee. Debbie Harry and Chris Stein had a loft on the Bowery across from CBGB's. And they and they just moved out. They were just starting to get big. It was like 1978, beginning of 78. And we were friends with Debbie. We'd met Debbie as soon as we got to New York. We were met Debbie and Paddy and Ramones and you know New York Dolls and all those people from Lee. And then um, <clears throat> we were staying. We were staying at Debbie's loft, and we had a gig. Uh, booked uh, for Max's Kansas City on the Halloween with the Cramps, and it was in six weeks of us arriving in New York, and we had um, we had no equipment, no money, uh, no rehearsal space, and no instruments. And I remember saying to I remember saying to Lee, you know, you know, Lee, you know, I was very young. Lee, how the fuck, how the fuck, are we going to play Max's Kansas City with the Cramps? You know, we're, we're, we're kind of a big band at the time. We're getting big. How are we going to play with the cramps in six weeks at Max's Kansas City when we don't have equipment, a place to rehearse, I barely have a place to live across from CBGB's? And he just looked at us and said, darlings, don't worry about it. It's going to happen. And, and, and we just looked at him like, you know, you know we had we had no drums, no bass, no, no no amps, no set lists, nothing. We were just sleeping on the floor in Derby Harris loft on on futons. And um, Buck knows, man. We he we pulled it off. He pulled it off. I remember he decorated the whole back of Max's with a big logo with a Cadillac, and and he, and he and he took old seventy eight records and he sprayed them with glitter and he hung them Sun seventy eights and fishing line. And the gig was a, a total sold out gig. That was our first gig in New York. It was with Mac, it was the Maxis in 78 with the Cramps. Yes. And did you, I mean, at that stage, because New York, 
obviously had sort of was quite run down then and was quite bankrupt and you know there's kind of a lot of stories about you know how grim it was especially the bowery so how did, how did you sort of cope being there it was a war zone we lived on the bowery above a liquor store and there were bums everywhere we would live right across the street from cbgb's and we walked to maxis but maxis uh, maxis was like our second home they had free uh, buffet during the day. And a lot of the musicians like, you know, the Senders and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers and other bands used to go there and eat the free food during the day. And then Lee was also friends with uh, Andy Warhol. And so, you know, one day, one day we, we, all, we all got dressed up. He said, you know, dress up everybody. We're going to meet an old friend of mine. And we said, you know, who's that? And he said, his, his name's Andy. And we said, Andy, Andy who? He said, it's Andy Warhol, he's a, he's a painter. And so we said, okay, so we, we all got dressed up and did our hair. And, and then we, we, we had no money at all, nothing. And we all dressed up and we did our hair and put on a bit of makeup. And we went up to the factory with Andy Warhol. And um, Andy had these huge buffets and we all went in and we like, you know, in it in complete Essex style. We were like stuffing like, you know, bagels and fucking cheese and ham in our pockets and hanging out with Andy. And I remember Andy came up to me, uh, he, he kind of singled me out and uh, was standing there by a big uh, stuffed uh, dog in the factory. This in 78. And Andy came up to me and he said, uh, you know, what's your name? And I said, Smuddy. And he said, you're adorable. You're so androgynous. You're so beautiful. Um, and I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Andy Warhol. And I said, and I said to him, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a painter and I make movies and I do this, this and this. And he said, would you mind taking your, your clothes off? And I said, um, and I went back into like this, you know, an Essex mode, you know, take my clothes off. And I could see Lee waving to me from the other side of the room, so, you know, you know, Andy's talking to you, like do what he wants. And I said, well, why, why, why do you want me to take my clothes off? He said, because you, you have tattoos and I want to take pictures of you. And I said to Andy, uh, Andy, I said, um, I said, Andy, I, I, I respect you, but what do you, what do I get out of it? What are you going to do for me? And he said, and I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a photographer and a painter and an artist and a filmmaker. And, and I said, and he said, what do you want? I said, I don't know, just something. He said, uh, what do you want? Tell me what you want. I said, a book. And then he like flicked his fingers and then some little minion came running in with a book and gave it to me. I said, can you sign it for me? And he signed it for me. And I said, I'll take my shirt off. And he took pictures of me in the factory in 1978. And then, um, you know, uh, and, and afterwards we were walking down the stairs and we were, we were leaving the factory. And Lee said to me, he said, you know, Smuddy, he said, um, what, what did Andy say to you? And I said, well, he asked me to take my shirt off to take a photo. And he said, and what did you say? I said, I want something if you want me to take my shirt off. And he said, Smuddy, darling, only you, only you would say to Andy Warhol, if I take my shirt off, what are you going to give me? And he said, that's why he will like you. <laughs> yes. So obviously, you know, that whole world of, of sort of the Velvet Underground, all the tin cans and uh, behind, 
behind Snoop. Yeah, so you just had no idea of, and had sort of no kind of um, awareness of where he was in the sort of, how he stood in the world of pop art. No, of course not. And I mean, I mean, in, 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 in the months following that, I became good friends with Mick Brock, who did all the, uh, you know, uh, Transformer and Royal Power and Bohemian Rhapsody and Robert Maplethorpe. Um, when you went to clubs back then in New York in 1977, 78, you would have, you know, Andy Warhol, at the bar, you would have Andy Warhol on one side of you, John Biasquet, Keith Haring and Robert Maplethorpe on the other. That's how, that's how it was. That's how it was. You know, there was 20 to 30 people, 40 people going to the clubs seven nights a week, the mud clubs, CBGBs, hurrahs, privates, Studio 54. And so you would see these people every night. So, you know, I became friends with Robert Mablethorpe. And he said, how do I get my hair in a, in a teddy boy quiff? And I, and, I, and I said, well, I'll come around and show you. And... I went round to his loft on Mercer Street when he and he slept on a, a prison bed in a Mexican prison jail with uh, torches with no mattress. And I didn't know that he was into well, I didn't know he was gay. Well, I was beginning to figure it out, but I didn't know also that that he was a uh, associate with Paddy Smith and and, and a, an up and coming photographer. And, it, and, it, and we became friends and I, and I, and I cut his hair and I, and I taught him how to do a quiff. And then one day he called me and he said, you know, can I, can I, can I take photos of you? And I thought, you know, and, I, and um, I came by and I went to his studio and I, and he said, do you want to see my portfolio? And I looked at it and I, you know, the first pages I opened is like a, a fist up an arse and a, a dagger down the end of the cock. And, you know, and I thought, fuck man, this is fucking, this is fucking heavy. And um, I remember going into the studio with Robert. Um, he was a wonderful, friendly, beautiful, beautiful guy. And he said, I said, Robert, do, do, you, um, do you want me to take my clothes off? And he said, no, I don't want to take your clothes off. You know, just take your shirt off if you want and I'll take pictures of you. And, and you know, now I'm, I'm hanging in the, the Tate Modern. Yes. You know, and, and the me is 15,000 quid, yeah. <laughs> which must be strange. So, with the you know, just briefly on the tattoos, when did you what, what age were you when you started getting them? Because, because when I was growing up in you know, this is kind of in good old East Anglia, there weren't many people with tattoos, and the only people that did they were pretty rough and ready, and they mostly got them when they did national service in the 50s. Um, so they're pretty, you know, like mostly knuckles and hands, but your tattoos have kind of were much more artistic. I was 14. And uh, I, lived, I lived in Essex and I, grew, and I had most of my friends were bikers, rockers, Hells Angels and Teddy Boys. And uh, I remember uh, my mum was pretty liberal. She was an artist and uh, people would come around to the house. And one day, one guy came with a homemade tattoo machine when I was 14. I was still at school. I hadn't. Uh, I, I left school early. I was expelled. But um, at 14, I was still at school, and I got a Mickey Mouse uh, with Indian ink tattooed on my arm and an earring the same day. And I went to school and got expelled. But um, about that time, my my grandfather was in the Royal Navy, and he was covered with tattoos. And the older Teddy boys um, that I wanted to be like 
had tattoos. And I wanted to see, I wanted to see bands like uh, Crazy Cavern and Flying Saucers and Shaking Stevens, but I was too young to get into a bar in South End on Sea in Essex in 1974 or 75 called the Pier Bar. But I took a job as a, as a hairdresser and I became very, very quickly uh, adapted to doing DAs and quiffs. And you know, doing the double roll and the quiffs and stuff. So, so I started doing that, and and then you know, some of the older Teddy boys said, "Hey, do you want do you want to come down to uh, the pier bar in South End?" And I said, I, "I won't get in." You know, I was fifteen, but I looked twelve. And um, and uh, one of the big Teddy boys, he was like six foot six. His name was Pete Driver. He was a massive guy, and I did his hair. One day, he took me down to the pier bar in South End, and he said. Uh, we went to the door and he said, um, he can't come in, he's too young. He said, he's with me. And they said, okay. So they let me in, it was like, I think it was like 1974 or 75, uh, around the same time I met Levi. And um, our first band I ever saw live was uh, Crazy Cavern and the Rhythm Rockers in 1975 at the Pier Bar, which was also called the Long Bar in South London, Sea in Essex. And then, um, and then it was a Teddy Boy life. And then, uh, then I met Lee, and then I met Thunders, and then I met Gail, and then um, the rest of it kind of uh, fell into place. I mean, uh, if I hadn't met Lee, uh, probably the band would never have done what it did. But Lee also had the connections from Bowie and Stooges and Mott the Hoople. And uh, he worked for me. Yes. So, and did you, I mean, at that stage, I mean, being quite young and, you know, it's kind of often documented, especially in films and books. I mean, I mean, it's hard to say no to things, you know, and sort of obviously New York at that time was kind of awash with drugs. How were you sort of coping with those? Because, I mean, obviously you're sort of dealing with or hanging out with quite a crowd of people and, and an awful lot of, you know, the scene. Were you able to sort of navigate that at all? Um... Yes and no. Lee, Lee, Lee was old school. Uh, he was like uh, almost like a Brian Epstein manager. The band only went out as a band. There were no girls allowed backstage. There were no groupies. There were no like orgies. There were no drugs. It was like we went out, we went to CBGB, we all walked in, dressed to the nines, and then we walked out. We went to see the Ramones, we walked out. We went to see Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers, we walked out. Went to see Blondie, we walked out. But we became friends with all of them. I remember one time we played a small club called TR3 in um, Soho before it was Soho. And my friend was the keyboard player in uh, Blondie, Jimmy Destry. And um, it was about 70 people in the club and uh, and, and then suddenly there was a knock on the door and I was like, oh, Jimmy, we're going on in like five minutes. It was like a shithole club and we were just getting big. And he said, oh, no, 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 I have a friend with me who wants to do his hair. And I said, well, you know, Jimmy, we're going on in a couple of minutes. Can it wait? He said, no, it can't wait. Can you let him in? And I said, so I opened the door and I, and I cracked the door and it was uh, Jimmy and David Bowie. And, um, and, I, and I'm now, of course, I looked out the door and I see Bowie standing there with red hair, red mohair jumper, you know, Johnson's pants, winkle pickers. And, and I said, I looked at the band, I said, you know, um, Jimmy's outside and he's with uh, David Bowie. Can he come in and do his hair? 
and um and uh, Lee said, "Oh yeah, David, David, David," because he'd worked with him. And so, so Bowie came in, and he said, "Do you mind if I borrow your hair dryer and your grease?" And he stood in front of the mirror. No, this is before cell phones. And 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 David did his hair, and um, fixed his hair and did his quiff, and then you know thanked us all. And then it was funny because it was a very small club, and it was like a puppet theater. It had like a curtain, and. Uh, <laughs> And we were playing, and every now and then there'd be this huge roar. I mean, there was 50 people in the club. And every now and then there'd be like this huge like crowd would go, whoa. And and what we didn't know that every every couple of songs, David Bowie would open the curtain and poke his head through the curtain like this. <laughs> and look at the And we were just like, we didn't know because we were we were actually playing to the audience, but behind the drums was a curtain. And right. David, David kept poking his head through the curtain and he was probably, you know, smoked a few joints or had a few beers and he would poke his head through the curtain. So imagine the crowd's reactions, you know, they're watching this little band up and coming, leave behind the Rockettes. And then behind them is David Bowie poking his head through the curtain. <laughs> Yes, my God, you did mix in the circle. So with the band, as it was, I mean, obviously it seems like it was kind of almost, yeah, it's kind of an interesting moment because most people who, in bands, that's all they've got, whereas you've got this kind of other other world, haven't you, as well? So how did you, because then you signed to um, the Chris Blackwell's uh, Island Records, didn't you, to, to release the first album? Levine Lee, when, when Jerry Nolan joined the band from Levine the Rockcats, he was in the Heartbreakers and the New York Dolls. And he uh, he blamed the New York Dolls breakup with David Johansson and the manager Lee Brunkrebs. And he, he wasn't a big favorite of lead singers. And uh, we were playing uh, regularly sold out big shows in LA at that point. We were doing national TV, the Merv Griffin show, the Midnight Special, and the Rockettes were on the news. We were, we, we were as big as any band in LA at that time. We were as big as the New York Dolls at that time in LA. And, um, and uh, at some point, Levi said, you know, I, I want to play more rockabilly and I don't want you to play bass guitar, and I want this, this, and this, and I want, and Lee would say, I think the band should be a little bit behind Levi, and, uh, you know, and, and make it more, more of Levi, because Lee was in love with Levi, massively. I mean, I don't think they ever had sex, but I think they were in love, he was in love with Levi. And he, and he, and he would say, you know, I think you guys should step back while Levi's performing. And, and and I had a chip on my shoulder. I was from fucking Essex. I was from fucking Basildon. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And so, you know, we played this gig at the Whiskey Go-Go with X and the Go-Go's or the Cramps. And Levi said, there's never going to be a bass guitar. And I, I liked Rockabilly a lot. But I also, once, once I got immersed into punk, I embraced it. Uh, with massively, I, I massively became a big fan of the Dolls, the Sex Pistols, Iggy Pop, The Damned, The Clash, um, all the bands. And, and I wanted to play bass guitar. And Levi said to me, if you ever come out with a bass guitar, that's the end of the band. So, uh, you know, I, I was a bit of a, 
a cheeky chap, if you want to call it that. And um, so we were playing the whiskey and uh, someone lent me a bass guitar and I, I strapped it on and I came out and Levi turned around and, and then he announced on stage, this is the last gig of Levi and the Rockettes. So we broke up uh, and we didn't know what to do because, you know, you know, we were with Jerry and Dibs and uh, Guy and, and Levi decided to go solo. I think it's 1979, and the last gig was at the Starwood in Los Angeles. Uh, he announced it at the Whiskey, this is the last gig at the Leaf and the Rockettes, and we did one more gig. And then Jerry said, um, in, in Jerry Nolan style, being a heartbreaker and a junkie, fuck those fucking guys, man, fuck that, fuck, 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 fuck that. We'll go on, we will do this, with or without Levi. This is, this is the rock ass, Dibs will sing. And I said, Jerry, we can't do that. And he said, yes, you motherfucking can, motherfucker. You know, Jerry was such a fucking hardcore. And, and so we booked a couple of the gigs as Levi and the rock ass and played San Francisco. And then um, we carried on. And then we went back to New York with Jerry and uh, uh, right, right uh, we did one tour with Jerry when Tim Scott McConnell joined the band. And um, Jerry was very much a heroin addict, and we had to go to methadone programs every sound check before every gig in Chicago and Detroit, Minneapolis. We'd have to go to methadone programs to Jerry to get his methadone. But we got to Atlanta, Georgia, and we were playing the 688 with Joan Jett, and uh, Jerry couldn't get Medicaid. They refused him. So he flew back to New York, and uh, basically that was the last gig Jerry did. When we got back to New York, we got another drummer. And we, and we played a gig called Hurrahs. We invited record labels. We got Johnny Thunder's new manager, Keith Rolls, to manage us. And um, we were playing. Iggy Pop came up and played with us and Johnny Thunder's and Phil Lynott from Finn Lizzy. And it was, one of the, it was a showcase gig and we didn't, didn't go down that well. Most of the record labels left. And, one, and then after the gig, there was one guy in the dressing room and a steel pulse t-shirt and faded Levi's and flip-flops. And he said, um, hey, you guys, you were great. And we said, okay, thanks a lot. You know, you know now fuck off. And he said, uh, <laughs> my name's Chris Buckwell. I'm, um, I run Island Records. So I just signed a band called U2 and my friend Grace Jones brought me here to see you. Um, would you want to come to my office on Monday? I'm leaving for Jamaica on Friday. He was going out with Miss world at the time and um we said are you for real he said yeah my name is chris blackwell i own i own island records and um i want to sign a rockabilly band so we said okay so uh yeah we basically we went to chris blackwell's office on monday and uh he signed us and then he said you sign the publishing deal tomorrow and we went to bob marley's house uh, on Central Park, and we signed a publishing deal in Bob Marley's living room. Bob was just getting sick. And um, yeah, we signed to Island Records. Chris sent us to England to do an album in a studio, Basing Street, where they did, you know, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and Space Oddly and all that. But we weren't ready. We didn't have the songs. So the, when we came back to New York, Chris said, do a live album called uh, At the Ritz, and we'll call it Live at the Ritz. And we will record it live on Friday and Saturday, print the covers, and it will be out in the stores on Monday. So we did this album called Live at the Ritz, and, uh, and, and that's what we did. 
Yes. And then, because obviously that's quite an interesting thing to do, because no, mostly people do a live album when they're when they're struggling to find the next studio album. Did how was the band and the dynamic within the band at that point? The dynamic in the band was that good at that point. When we did Live at the Ritz, we had a, replaced Jerry with a really good drummer. Um, and, uh, and things were going really well. Because with the band, I mean, obviously there was, there was that sort of, you then make your sort of, um, your biggest hit, make that move, which was kind of a few years later. So I was just going to say, I mean, in the UK, you know, like you said, you know, Stray Cats are sort of hit. And at the same time, all these other, you know, there was the independent charts were full of music and, and scenes, but that was in the UK. The USA, I mean, there was that kind of Bruce Spring, the world of Bruce Springsteen, and then there was all that LA rock. So where were you fitting into all that? Well, it, it was it was it wasn't easy because you know uh, when we got signed to RCA, they didn't quite know how to categorize us or which genre to put us in. Uh, we were very well liked. We were selling out massive gigs. We would play the Ritz. You know, most people play the Ritz one night. We would play the Ritz three nights sold out. And we opened for Kiss, and when The Clash came to town on London Calling and Com and Sandinistia, we opened for The Clash in Times Square and Bonds, and we were friends with them. And we also opened for Go-Go's and Pretenders and Tina Turner and, and Kiss and, and you know, many other bands, Talking Heads, the Ramones. Um, uh, it was hard for RCA to actually try to figure out what to do with us. Um, and they couldn't figure out a producer. Uh, but at the time, um, they liked this song by uh, Soft Silk uh, called um, Tainted Love by Mark Armour, which was not its original song, it's originally by Gloria Jones. But um, we got Mike Thorne from Wire that was also producing Tainted Love, which was also a huge hit in the clubs at the time. He produced Make That Move. To me, Make That Move was good, but it was a little bit too overproduced and a little bit sort of neo. It was, it was neo rockabilly for sure. And the cover was for sure. But, you know, he, we use synthesizers on the bass and we use his, you know, you know, diff, diff, different stuff that no one had ever used because Mike Thorne was one of the first people actually as a producer, you know, to go along the lines of, of Brian Eno and, and be experimental in the studio. But it was in Wire, and he produced it, and it and, and it charted, and it was a hit. It, well, it was, it was in Billboard charts in the top hundred, and we got offered tours with you know the Gold Goals and Flogger Seagulls, and we did you know stadium tours and stuff like that. But um, it, it, RCA was never quite sure. But then we signed to bigger management, and we got uh, the biggest manager in New York at the time was Tommy Mottola. He uh, married Mariah Carey. He managed Hall and Oates, Kid Creole and the Coconuts. And um, he said, you know, I'm going to take you to MCA. So when the Rockettes broke with Make That Move, we were in heavy uh, uh, medium rotation on MTV, 1981 or 80, 80, 81, 80, 81, 82. And, um, and Tommy called us in the office. He said, uh, um, your record's good, but fuck RCA. Uh, we're going to change labels tomorrow. I'm playing golf with um, the, the president of MCA. 
in Hamptons. And it's, okay, whatever. Tommy was like that. It was, it was old school. I'm playing golf with the president of MCA tomorrow and fuck RCA. Um, they're not doing a good enough job. I'm taking you off of um, MTV tomorrow of, of medium rotation. We'll do a new video and a new album and we're going to heavy rotation and we'll do a new album with MCA. And that was Tommy's idea. So we got called in the office one day, he called us in and he got um, our A&R uh, agent uh, assigned us to MCA, Nancy Jeffries. And he said, hey, Nancy, it's Tommy Matola. And she goes, hey, okay. Tommy was feared. He was mafia. I mean, music mafia. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and she said, uh, Raw Cats are not doing so good on, on RCA. So um, um, fuck you. We're, we're changing labels today. And she said, Okay, Tommy, you're changing labels today. He said, Yeah, they're going to be on MCA this afternoon. I'm playing golf in the Hamptons with MCA, the president. And we said, Okay. And then Tommy told us, he said, uh, okay, guys, uh, took you off RCA today, but now you're on MCA as of now. And so that's the way it was. That's the way the music business was. You know, we were on it. We were on RCA one day with one phone call and a golf club game. We were on a different label the same day. Yes, that is quite different to those kind of, um, a lot of those kind of indie bands and punk bands who were sort of in those small clubs. You, you were dealing with sort of pretty heavy management, weren't you? That it does it does not get heavier than Tommy Matola. It does not get heavier. Yes, and did you and did you also feel a little bit afraid of him? Not a little bit afraid, very afraid. <laughs> yes. So then, how did because because the band doesn't last that much longer, does it? Got guns laying around the office. He had uh, one million dollar checks laying on the desk in glass cases. He managed Hall and Oates. He managed Kid Creole. And he said, you know, hey, you mamalukes, do you want to be a fucking RCA? Fuck RCA. Fuck RCA. You're going to be an MCA tomorrow. I'm playing golf with him this afternoon in the Hamptons. End of. So, so God, did, did, you, did you just sort of quiver in your shoes thinking, yes, that's fine. We won't, we won't even ask any questions. Exactly. Did you, I mean, at that stage, I mean, did they have a plan of what the next album was going to be and, and the next five years of the band? The neo-rockabilly album, Tommy wanted to change the name, which they did. They got a big producer in that produced the Romantics. We did it at Electric Lady, Jimi Hendrix's studio on Bleecker Street. Uh, not everyone got to play on it. It came out and it, did, it wasn't a hit. So Tommy dropped us and then... We played a few more gigs after that. And then um, I think our last gig was with Joan Jett in, um, I forget where it was, it was like uh, 1984, 85, was one of our last couple of gigs. And we, we, we still played a few gigs, Peppermint Lounge, but we'd, we'd also been managed by Jerry Brand on the Ritz. Our lawyer was Bruce Springsteen and Madonna's lawyer, Paul Schindler. Our manager was Tommy Matola. But you know, things 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 started to go down, downhill. So we just basically said in '85, let's take a break, yes. and we took a break in '90, and then '90 we started getting offers from Japan for like you know ten twenty thousand dollars for a gig, 
And in uh, 92, we reformed and went to Japan and started making albums in Japan. And then after that, we did Viva Las Vegas and started getting... And, and, and we still play now, but we, you know, um, it's very infrequently. We're all, we're all brothers. We all love each other. We've been in a band together since 1977. But um, we've been through a lot. Um, I, I wouldn't say... I mean, I... The Rockettes were never as successful as the Stray Cats. Everybody knows that. But we paved the way for the for that band. Yes. Just like just like the New York Dolls paved the way for Kiss and Aerosmith. We paved the way for Neo Rockabilly. There, yeah. there, there wasn't another band before us. No one had an electric stand-up bass with pickups on it. No one dressed like us. No one looked like us. And we paved the way. We broke away from the crazy cavern and the shaking Stevens and the flying saucers, and we opened doors. I mean, Duran Duran opened for us at the venue in 1979. Bloody hell, that's amazing, isn't it? God, you were you were you were definitely there, sort of uh, setting the scene. And did you work with another guy called Tim Scott McConnell? Tim Scott McConnell. Uh, after the Rockets broke up, I. Um, I, I, I was working for Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones for a while and I ran a nightclub in Miami for him but I got pretty strong out on coke and I went to rehab and after I got out of rehab I was there for six months on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Arizona um, I, I landed at Tim's and I said can I stay with you and, and then he was on Geffen Records and, um, and, and I said you know and I listened to his music and it was great but he had like these amazing super talented Pink Floyd type session musicians with him. And I went to see him play and I thought, well, fucking songs are great. But, you know, you can have Pink Floyd as a backup band, but it's shit. You know, basically shit. It's like you have it all, but you've got these smiling guys with playing absolutely perfect, standing behind you, playing every note perfect looking perfect, playing perfect, but it, it had no soul. Yes. So how long so I went you... to him. So I went to him and I said, do you want to start a band? And I'd been living in Arizona and it was, there was these wild pigs there called javelinas. They were like wild boars. And uh, we started in my garden, a barbecue one day. And Charlie Quintana from the plugs came over and we started this, playing this Irish pub called Molly Malone's on Tuesday nights. And before long, um, we had songs and great songs. He's, he's, he is one of the best, he is the best songwriter I've ever worked with. Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan both are huge fans of his. He, Bruce Springsteen's covered his song twice and had a number one hit with one of his songs. And Bob Dylan asked us to go on tour with him. Um, we started to have a lean in my garden on Lindenhurst and Fairfax near a bar called Molly Malone's. We played there on Tuesday nights in an Irish pub because nobody there and played darts and drank harp lager. But, you know, within like one or two months, we had, you know, Clem Burke from Blondie playing drums and Hunt Sales from Tin Machine, Ian Asbury and Billy Idol and Billy Duffy and, you know, people coming down to the gigs. And uh, it took off from there. We, we, we never looked for a record deal. We didn't, Tim didn't want a record deal. Um, uh, we and we ended up, you know, we charged two dollars to get him. And I remember very 
carefully. We were in the, the dressing room was in the kitchen and uh, a couple of labels came in the back one time, like Chris Lewis or uh, A&M, and they said, uh, we want to come see the Havelinas, but we're not going to pay to get in. Can we come in the back door? And we just said, fuck off. Fuck off. It's $2 to get in. You want to see us? Go pay. And then one day, Carol Childs, who was the head of Electra, right, uh, came to the back door and she said, I'll pay to get in. I want to see the band. And she came in. She was actually dating Bob Dylan at the time. And uh, and uh, she, she, she came in. She goes, I really, really like this band. I like these songs. And we snuck Bob Dylan's son. Son was like 14. Uh, uh, Jacob Dylan came in and we, we snuck Jacob in and backstage and he came in and um, we, we played some stuff and then uh, and then uh, we didn't have a management or a lawyer or nothing, nothing at all. Tim, Tim wanted out the music business completely, he wanted out, he wanted out, he'd had enough. And then uh, he said to uh, Carol, said, well, I want to sign you guys. And we all just looked at each other and thought, yeah. What the fuck? Another, another fucking record deal. What the fuck does that mean? Where does that go? What is, is, is a record deal the answer is to every band's dream? No, it's the beginning, beginning of a nightmare. Record, record deals mean nothing. Only if the A&R guys are behind you and the labels behind you. Record deals are meaningless. They mean nothing. So Cal said, I really want to sign you. And I've got a producer and I want to come back. And, and she came back a few couple of times to Molly Malone's. By then, um, Molly Malone's held 100 people legally um, for the gigs on Tuesday nights. And we were having 250 people at the gigs. And, uh, and we played the songs. And one of them was High Hopes. Yes. Which became uh, a hit for Bruce Springsteen. He wrote, Tim wrote High Hopes in the Havelinas. And um, we got signed to Electra and she brought some uh, producer down to see us that produced John Cougar Mellon Camp and R.E.M. And uh, he was kind of like a bit of a hippie dude in flip-flops and a t-shirt. And he said, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. But um, before that we had like, you know, it was so weird. We, had, we didn't want to do showcases. Tim had burnt out in the music business and, you know, the SIR showcases and all that fucking bullshit. He didn't want to do it. So uh, the record company, a record company called us one day and said, Jimmy Iveen, you know, is a huge producer, huge Interscope Records, wants to uh, sign you guys. He wants to do a showcase. And we said, we don't do showcases. You want to come, do you want to come by somebody's house? We'll play in the living room. And um, I had a, a fish pond outside my house and I had a German Shepherd dog. And, and then the day that Jimmy Iveen came, it was, I don't know, it was in the afternoon, this huge white, you know, block length limousine showed up. Jimmy Iveen came out in a white suit with a trub, you know, fedora hat. And my dog uh, ran out the house, ran through the pond and jumped on him. <laughs> Uh, he covered with paw prints and dog prints, and he came in and he saw us and he he, he liked the show, but he uh, but he was a bit traumatized by the, the dog and the fact that we were playing in my living room. So we said, "Well, fuck him, fuck fuck him, and fuck his label." 
And then another guy came uh, and, and he said, where do you want to showcase? And we said, I don't know. He said, oh, I know this really good Chinese place it's in Lancashire in the valley. And they have really good, really good Chinese food and the sweet and sour is really good. They have a little stage. Do you want to have dinner there and maybe play a couple of songs? And then, and so we said, yeah, that sounds good. So I think like a couple of weeks after Jimmy Iovine came, we went to like a Chinese restaurant in North Hollywood. And it was just tiny little stage. We'd barely fit a drum kit on it. And I had my bass and Charlie and we played High Hopes and one other song. And, 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 and I remember Don Gamer was just sitting there with chopsticks and he was eating. And uh, we came down and we put the bass down and then, and, and, um, you know, turned the guitars off and we came back and sat down for dinner and we were drinking more sake. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. This is, this is good. Excellent. Excellent. So then you got it. Yeah. Fantastic. My God, you have met the biggest people in, in music, haven't you? Yeah, I have. That must be quite weird. Jimmy Iovine, you know, is like a billionaire now. You're Been covered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that must, have, that must bring back lots of memories, seeing him looking like that, looking so kind of splattered. So then, so with the band, because I was listening to quite a bit of it, you know, in the last few days, I mean, it has just kind of constantly sort of been there in, in your life throughout the decades, hasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, now uh, Ledfoot is a big part of my life. I, I don't play with him right now, but he is just, uh, as a songwriter and a singer, he's off the charts. He's off the charts. He just won the Norwegian Grammy. You should check out his album, White Crow, um, When Angels Fall, and um, uh, Fortunate Son. I mean, uh, I mean, all of the Rockettes, Danny Harvey, Danny B. Harvey had a band with Slim Jim and Lemmy Kilminster for 10 years called The Head Cap. He's married to Jerry Lewis's granddaughter. Bibbs uh, has a band is now best friends and hanging out with Brian Setzer. Barry has a band called Lucky Seven and owns four coffee shops in Hoboken. Um, Lewis has written a book about Jerry Nolan. I mean, Quite a lot of talent came out of the Rockettes in the end. Yes, absolutely. So then, I mean, did you ever sort of go back to Essex after that experience in America, or did you just stay in America and then go to Iceland? No, I, um, well, I, I never went back to Essex for a long time, but three years ago, I had a, a nervous breakdown and I was uh, put in a mental institution for a year. And um, I, was, I didn't know at the time, but probably during the Rockettes, I hadn't realized from doing, you know, drugs, coke, weed, smoking and touring that I was bipolar. And, um, and, then, and then when I stopped playing in the band, um, you know, and, and I tried to settle down, I had a, a bipolar rapid cycling moment. Right. <laughs> and, I didn't know that. So um, I tried to kill myself unsuccessfully, obviously, because I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I was put in an institution in Seattle, Washington for uh, two months. And then I was put into a mental institution in the UK for a year. And then, um, 
I have a wife here now, I have a band, I have a radio show, and I've, I've sort of I've, I've come full circle. I'm off of all the medications. Uh, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. I do mindfulness, meditation. And um, I'm back to myself. I'm, I'm writing my book now, and um, I've probably never been quite as focused and centered as I am now, apart from my mum dying. Um, um, as I was in the Rockettes, because I think in the Rockettes, you know, it was so fast and we were so young and we were meeting Merv Griffin and Midnight, you know, and hanging out with Marianne Faithful and Twiggy and Timothy Leary and Doug Weston and playing shows with the Gold Goals and having orgies with the Gold Goals and hanging out with the Cramps and, and, and all this stuff. It was probably um, undetected. It was it, because because I was always on something or high or touring or playing. It, I, it, it was it wasn't something that I noticed until it stopped. Yes, this is this is often the way, isn't it? Bloody hell! So that um, was there any sign that things were sort of had you you know looking back? Did you did you suddenly realise? I suppose hindsight's a marvelous thing, but did you did you suddenly realize that things had started to kind of get to a critical point where you just wanted it to end? Yes. Yes. And how and how did you sort of I mean, did somebody sort of give you a really amazing help in hand at that moment when you needed it? Uh, my ex-wife or a partner, I was in Seattle at my daughter's graduation and I decided to produce a play. And so I flew Leadfoot and um, this guy, he's a, an armed bank robber, criminal. Um, uh, he shot a security guard. He was Amy Winehouse's minder. He's now as a poet. He was similar to sort of a cross between Bukowski and Kerouac and and, and um, um, uh, Henry Rowlings. And uh, I decided to be to play three years ago, or three and a half years ago now. So I booked a theatre and I, I, I did negotiations with Bravo TV and I had Julie Roberts, his producer, and, and we were staying with the Rolling Stones at uh, one of their houses in, in, I forget, it was just, friend of mine's designer for the Stones and she pulled us up with a house with Bernard Fowler who's a backup singer for the Stones and we were staying there and and that's when things started to fall apart I think a combination of things um probably smoking a lot of weed and and the stress of the play and 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 having all these uh responsibilities of trying to keep it all together it was, was going to be a quite a big event um that that's what triggered it and uh, and I, I and uh, i ended up in um i ended up in a uh, in a mental hospital for for two months in seattle because i went to my daughter's house um and tried to kill myself um bit hard to talk about but um didn't happen but um uh i, I didn't really see it coming until it hit me and then, and then, and when it, and and when, and 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 after thought, and after look now, I probably had it all my life, but it, I probably hadn't addressed it or noticed it because I was always active. I was on tour. I was in a band. I was playing with the Go Go's. I was touring with Bowie. I was opening for the Clash, 
and I was smoking weed and I was going from one tour bus to the next, one hotel to the next, one city to the next. So when, when you're in that situation, uh, your bipolar or manic depression, as it used to be called, um, it, it doesn't really materialize until that stops. Yeah. When, when that stops, that's when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, that's, uh, yes, that's, that's something that I've heard. So yeah, bloody hell. Well, well done. You managed to get it. And then, is that how you ended up in Iceland after this, getting out after the year? Oh, uh, no, I met my wife in, uh, in England in a pub in Camden called the Elephant's Head in uh, about 13 years ago. I was single. I was uh, living back in England for a while, enjoying London, going to Camden, seeing great bands, and the music scene was great, and the club scene was great, and I was running into old friends. And I just met her there and um, fell in love with her. And, and uh, I had a flat in Golders Green in London on Finchley Road, opposite the sushi place at Henry's Corner. Um, and I liked Golders Green, actually. And um, she lived in Camden Mews, around the corner from Amy Winehouse. And she knew Amy. Amy used to come to parties, and she used to party with Amy Winehouse and stuff. And so, she, we, you know, it was like, a, well, you know Amy Winehouse, you know, blah, 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 blah. And... Um, uh, then I lost the, the flat in London, got, the building got sold and Kate's mum, Kate's dad got ill and we decided to go back to Iceland uh, before he died. And then, and then I came to Iceland and then, uh, and then I made a band here, I got a radio show and um, started doing rock hat gigs and um, things, things kind of turned around. Yeah, amazing. And just, I mean, I mean, just the one thing that's quite extraordinary are those, the images of you. I mean, how do you feel about those amazing photographs that, you know, Robert Maplethorpe took? I mean, when you see them now, I mean, they're like, wow, just stunning, aren't they? I mean, how do, does, that, does that feel quite strange, especially when you realise they're probably worth millions, the original prints? Um, I don't, you know, Looking back, I, you know, with because I was androgynous and because I looked like a girl with tattoos, I think I was a pirate. And I think that people like Mick Brock and Andy Warhol, Robert Maplethorpe, Lee Black, Childers, Bob Gruen, Marshall Resnick, Janet Beckman, all the big New York photographers, Stephen Mizell, uh, Bruce Weber, uh, they, they saw something in me. That I wasn't a model. I was I was the real thing. I was the real deal. Nobody nobody in 1978 in New York, Andy Warhol's factory had tattoos. Just me. And this is pre Stray Cats and pre pre Guns and Roses and Motley Crue. So um, I think the attraction. Uh, for Mick Rock and, and Bob and and Andy and and Maplethorpe was you know that that, uh, that I was something different that I that, uh, I was you know I I was a factory boy I I was Joe D'Alessandro I was the new generation I was the second generation of the factory I hung out of the factory and I was 
the second generation. I mean, I, I, when Joe D'Alessandro and Candy Darling and Jackie Curtis and all those people started not coming to the factory, I was going to the factory. Yes, amazing, amazing life. Well, I'm, you know, it's just an incredible story with so much to it. I just, you know, I have not, um, I mean, just, just lastly, I mean, if you, I mean, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out, I mean, what, you know, what bit of advice would you've given them or something that you'd like to have whispered, you know, through the experience and the, and the wisdom that you've had over the, over the decades? Um, it's a hard one, but I, f I feel if you think, if you think you're different, if you think you're not going to fit in the box, if you think you're gay, if you think you're not gay, if you think, if you just feel like, if you just feel like you don't want to fit in, and don't want to be in that box and take that fucking plumber's job in Basildon and become a plumber or fucking work for Fords or fucking Bank of England. Um, and, and, and your heart is telling you that. I say, um, I say follow your dream because you have one life. And, um, and, and I made mistakes and I probably didn't do everything we could have done and could have been bigger than we could have been. But um, go with your guts. Go with, go, with your, go with your inner spiritual voice is telling you to do because that is what you really need to do. You have to listen to your inner voice and, you, and if your inner voice is telling you, do this. And when I met Lee Childers, and, I, and Lee said to me, do you want to be in this band and go to New York? And, or do you want to stay in Barcelona and be a French polisher? And I said, I want to join the band to be in New York, but I don't play anything. And he said, darling, that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's one hell of a story. And then you can look out your front door and you have the Northern Lights just there. The most amazing spectacle in the world. Yeah, see him all the time. That's so lucky. Well, not lucky, but but um, does it feel? Do you feel at peace now, or some form of peace? Um, yeah, I'm 61. Uh, I've got two kids, got a wife, got a daughter in LA. It's beautiful. Looks like Kate Moss. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I miss playing. I miss gigs. I've got, I have I have my radio show, which I really enjoy because I play such a cross-selection of material. So on Friday nights, it's live and I broadcast it on the internet. So a lot of people in the UK and the USA listen and normally get like between two and 500 comments I'm on the air. Um, um, yeah, I'm pretty much a piece. I have a good job. I work at a homeless shelter. I help young drug addicts and alcoholics trying to get to clean and to rehabs. Uh, I make good money, um, you know, thousand quid a week or whatever it is, nine hundred quid a week. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty at peace. Um, there, there, there's, 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 there's things that are always going to come up. I mean, life's, life's never easy, and no one, and no one ever said it would be. 
and and there's no guarantees and there's no there's no like you know you can wish for a lot of things you can hope for a lot of things i believe in the the power of positive uh, visualization um i'm buddhist and um creative visualization i do cognitive behavioral therapy i do mindfulness meditation and I go fishing every day, I hike every day, and I go to work and I play my bass and I'm writing my book. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, pre I'm pretty centered. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me, you know, the time for this. And um, yes, when I, when I put it out, I'll send you a link and you can always use it if you want to on any of your social media sites. So that'd be incredible. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, well, look, thank you ever so much and, uh, you know, take care and um, best of luck for the future. I hope that wasn't boring. <laughs> no, my God, no, no, God, this is, a, this, it was amazing. But, um, well, thanks for, for everything. And, um, yeah, and I really loved listening to your music for, yeah, a long time. Anyway, look, take care. See you later. Bye-bye. God bless. And, and that is um, the end of the conversation. I know, very emotional goodbye there. Um, yes, a massive thank you to Smutty Smith, sometimes known as Stephen Dennis Smith to some people. Um, yes, amazing story. Um, and this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. It's that simple. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.